Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you this podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, in transition or possibly feeling stuck, and giving them access to career stories from people who have already been through what they've been through. They've started out, they've probably been through transition, and they've certainly been stuck through their career. And today we're going to be interviewing Brian Strandes. Hi, Brian. Hello, Kathy. And Brian owns two companies, one called 9to5Search and the other called 10till2. Yes. And I can't wait to hear more about how you got into that business. Uh, and what leads up to how you got into that business is where you grew up, uh, where you are in the birth order, how many siblings, and how did that influence you? So we'll start with those icebreaker questions. Sure. Um, so I grew up in a small town called Washington, Connecticut. First town named after George Washington. Oh, um, and East Coast. 87, yeah, it's a town of 3,000 people, um, about an hour and a half outside of New York City. Um, I have an older brother and a younger sister, so I'm the middle child. Um, a little bit more of the, I don't know, peacemaker, shall we say. Um, I'm a middle. <laughs> yeah, you get it. Um, and, you know, we had, a, we, I lived an idyllic lifestyle. I had, we had 40 acres, ponds, and rivers, and, you know. Wow, so all places to play as a youngster. A lot of places to play. Mini bikes, and tractors, and farm equipment, and chickens, and things like that. Oh, wow. Um, and my dad commuted to New York City every day. So Holy cow. Moved. So how long was he gone? Like uh, Six to six. Wow. He was gone for 12 hours a day, mm-hmm. and then he'd come home. And he was a German immigrant, so he um, had a... Um, an interesting way of communicating. It was not a lot of talking, um, not great at communicating, but there were certainly expectations laid out and they were pretty clear. Uh, so that's, you know, one of the influences in my life is um, I try and communicate a lot more with people <laughs> because he was not great at it. And I get it. It was a different era. But um, so that's kind of how it, and I went to a prep school, a small a private school for high school in my hometown. We had a uh, a public school that was not great um, and so I got a scholarship to go there it was in my hometown so I just commuted and was a day student but oh. um, that influenced me a lot that experience I went to school with a lot of very um, wealthy people from New York City and surrounding New England areas and um, you know that was I kind of realized that hey these people are <laughs> this guy's got a chauffeur that drives him to school it's not a, it's a different experience than I I had an upper middle class background and listen we belonged to a country club and had a sailboat and did a lot of nice great things but it was nowhere near um, the experience that some of these kids had yeah so you got to see probably all sides of life right all sides so you got of to life. experience that hey I've got it pretty good and then you're like but compared to that I don't right <laughs> So interesting. Okay. And, um, so what sports in particular, were there any sports that, that you played or? Yes, we played a lot of sports in my family. We did tennis and golf and sailing. I played football, baseball, and basketball growing up. Um, I actually went on to college and played at a division three school, college football. Um, that was a big influence on me on how to be a great teammate. Um, and I met a lot of great people doing that. So my prep school football coach had gone to a school in Iowa. My parents had split up and money was a lot tighter than it was before, so I got a scholarship, an academic scholarship, to go to this school called Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Now, I had never been, I don't know, west of New York City, so, you know, going out to Iowa was quite a culture shock, Um, and my dad drove me out there. Uh, He had a business trip, and we stopped a lot of places on the way and dropped me off, and here it is, um, the middle of August, you know, 95 degrees and 95% humidity, and... I meet all these kids from Illinois and Indiana and Iowa and kind of the surrounding states and, and started, you know, 
doing our three day football program, and I got to be some. It was a it was culture shock. Yeah, I mean, drastic culture shock. But I really enjoyed it. I thought I, I had a great time. I enjoyed the football experience. I had a double major in business and biology, and um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, school is what you make of it. Yeah. And at least my experience is in a 2,000 person school, I was able to be in a fraternity. I was, um, you know, a student rep on the student council. I got to be involved in a lot of different things. Yeah. So. Which is what you make of it. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of your personality. Well, it's interesting. I asked the sports question, but I also ask about music or other interests because I feel like that gives you a, a sense of belonging a lot of times. Yeah. And, um, you know, sports has been a big part of my life, and so I feel like I have that that tribe or that group. Yes. And you have friends in that way, which you don't even know. But so if you move someplace else, you could, you know, always step into maybe that that sport team or whatever. But yeah, no, I agree, hundred yeah. percent. And, and then really your time important. was also scheduled for you. It sounds like three a day, so yes. you didn't get dropped off in the dorm. And it's like, well, what am I going to do for the next two days before classes start? Right? It's yeah, I'm already doing stuff, and I and I think you know specifically with football, what I love about it, and I coach now a lot, um, is that you know it's a hard sport, and you really eleven kids have to do the right thing on the same play in order for it to be successful, and they hold you accountable, and um, that sense of accountability as well as you know being a part of something greater than yourself is uh, I think uh, um, that makes you realize that you're not the star all the time that you can be alignment and still enjoy it that you need to be a part of something that maybe you're not the president but you are a contributor and that's okay yeah it's a great life lesson I like that accountability and the teamwork and bigger than something Bigger than yourself, you know, yeah. you're part of that. So, um, cool. so yeah, so that that was a great experience for me. And the business and biology, really drastically different majors, but they have kind of worked out in my life to help me with a career and um, also be really uh, kind of have an interest in those two specific things. And, and um, like yourself, a, a person who is a lifelong learner, and I read books and do a lot of different um, outside groups in order to, you know, explore what the world has to offer. Yeah. Okay, well, cool. I can't wait to dive a little more into that. So uh, let's, uh, I have to finish up the icebreakers, though, because sure. there, there is a process here. Okay. <laughs> a formula. So on the fun meter, on a scale of one to five, so where do you I'm put yourself? I'm probably a four. I'm a relatively serious person. My wife is much more spontaneous and fun, um, but I'm more of a, I don't know, I can do it, and I do like to have fun, but my idea of fun sometimes is just to curl up with a book. Mm. Or uh, watch a movie with my kids or, you know, um, go out and see a concert or we don't go out and party a lot. We have a 15, 13, and 11 year old sons and their lives are relatively busy and uh, relatively, I like how you say that. Yeah, they're relatively busy. (laughs) Well, I had an interview on Monday who said she doesn't really call it the fun meter. She calls it the joy meter or what does she enjoy doing? And it was spending time with her. Her husband spent reading a book, and it sounds like that's how you're defining it, too. And I went to four basketball games this past weekend and one Nuggets game. So, you know, two on one day, two on the next day. And that's a lot of fun for me. I keep score. I'm involved in that um, mm-hmm. now that I don't coach him in that sport. So that's really a joy for me. And on yesterday or on Monday night, we watched Remember the Titans, which we do every Martin Luther King Day. It's a great movie on integration, and it's got football as a theme, and... It, um, you know, it's one of those kind of fun family traditions that we do. That's and cool. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And we had a great time doing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, my oldest son said he didn't want to watch it. He sat down for five minutes and then he never got up. Uh-huh, yeah. 
It's like, no, I got other things I want to do, right? And then there's like, no, what? I kind of I need to remember. I need to remember. Or I'm really liking this. Yeah. I don't want to like it because it's not as cool <laughs> as I want to be, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> not as cool as I am today, right? Yeah. So uh, let's switch to the risk meter. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a risk taker. So I think... Um, Are you off the scale? You're not even a five? You're no, like I'm an a eight? five. I'm a five. <laughs> I, you know, I've bought businesses. I have joined smaller companies. I um, have invested a lot in real estate. I just think that you, in order to get big gains, you have to take big risks. Now, they're calculated risks, and you use your head, but, um, you know, you find some people you trust as far as the investment part, and you, um, you know, invest with them. As far as uh, companies or experiences in life, you know, I'll go take a sailboat and go out to the, as far as I can until they tell me to turn around in, a, in an ocean, um, just because it's fun. Yeah. Um, but you've also had some training in that, so it's not yes, like you're... Yeah, it's a calculated yeah. risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, marathon I've done a lot of different things um, athletic wise to jump off of cliffs and I don't think that there's super duper risks because I, I didn't go first maybe <laughs> and I saw that you could survive but um, I think you know to live life big you kind of got to put it out there and for that for me is a little bit of risk taking so it's kind of back to what you said school is what you put into it you yeah. have to take the risk to put yourself out there right and you really do yeah. And sports is that way too, right? Because you could be the Entirely. one that drops the ball, or yeah, does yeah. Matter. But mm -hmm. guess what? You better have that mentality that I want to get the, the I want the next play to run towards me. I want to get the next ground ball. I want to be up when the game's on the line, because otherwise you're not going to be successful. Yeah, yeah. You can't live in that fear, or that no. space of not no. having confidence. So. Well, very cool. That's, I think, some great insight into Brian. So let's talk a little bit about your two companies, and then we'll talk sure. about and how did I get here. Yes, so uh, 9 to 5 Search is a um, recruiting company that I started. We specialize in finance and accounting for business services, construction, and engineering companies. Um, I just like that area. I like accounting, and I think that, not that I am an accountant, but I think it's very tangible. If people need them, they turn over. So there's some movement in the industry so that I can make my commission on, on placements. Um, and what we focus on there is really with the, pay, uh, the people that we place is culture fit. So I have oh, yeah, that's... hired and fired a lot of people. Um, for the last 20 years, I've been a business owner. The last four were 10 till two and nine to five search. But I hired and fired a lot of people and made a lot of mistakes. And I think what I wasn't looking for was that do, it, do our values line up? Do we show up for our clients and customers the same way? Do we kind of have a process and a similar idea of how, how to serve our client, our customer? And I think that those things are really important. We can teach people skills. You know, experience comes with time. God either gives you talents or he doesn't. But culture fit is really one of the missing things that I think people are looking for now because I, when I interview people and, um, you know, interview companies to, to work with, a lot of times they don't know what their culture is. They haven't intentionally created one. So it is what everyone kind of feels around the office. And it might be one thing for one person, another thing for another person. Um, and I don't think that's a great way to have an intentional culture. Yeah. Um, for people... You know, they just don't, they, they get their values, they understand what their values, but they don't realize sometimes, at least older people don't realize that their culture or their values can line up with their organization, with a purpose, with a mission, with a, a way we do business, with an, uh, you know, an ethical or moral value that is associated with the way we do business. Those things are really important for people to stick around. Yeah. Well, and sometimes in certain generations... They stuck around because I just need the job, and I've been there, and you know they've been loyal or what have you. But yeah, yeah. There, there are some things that don't. You know, fit, when we so. grew up, it was 
40 years in a gold watch. Yeah. Now it's every three to five years, people change jobs, if not every two to three years. Mm -hmm. And they do it because the aid uh, technology is kind of, you know, there's always startups. It's a very small amount of money that it needs. And once you, to, to kind of get it started, you can do it in your basement. Once you get it started, um, you know, all you have to do is replicate that software and that's a relatively inexpensive thing to do and you can scale it really quickly. So startups are a lot easier to do. You don't have to buy manufacturing stuff. You don't have to have a plant. You don't have to have a physical plant. So, you know, it's a, it's a different world and so I think that's not unusual that they do that, but I think also, you know, I don't, I, the reason why I emphasize culture is because I don't want someone to move down the street or to the next job because of, you know, $100 a week, $5,000 a year. That's ridiculous. I spent so much time, effort, and money to train these people. And granted, you know, if they're not happy, they should move on. But if they just want a little bit more money, maybe we can come and talk. And maybe I cannot compensate them with specifically $5,000 more. But maybe I can say, hey, you know something? Right now, that's not in the program. We're a little tight. How about if you work from home on Friday? How about if we give you a lot more flexible schedule? How about if I give you a new title? How about if I send you away for some little bit more education or buy you an online class to get your skills up better so that I can kind of justify that $5,000? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways to compensate and reward people that I think are maybe not as expensive as strict cash, but will um, allow them to become better people, better employees, feel more fulfilled, and stick around. Wow. So, yeah, I can definitely tell you're, you're in the people business. Yeah. But the, it has to work for the employer and the employee and you. I mean, there's yes. you're bringing them together. And so and you mentioned so many different things that do make a difference for people and for companies about how that fit works. So you're really, obviously, you're an expert because you own these businesses. So. Wow. so now let's go back to when you were a youngster. You know, you mentioned business and biology. That's not people business to me. <laughs> business no, sort of, it's but, not. So what did you want to be when you were a young man? Um, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a football player. Ah, and yeah. um, I came to the realization that I don't come from big stock. Um, we're not fast and we're not, you know, strong. So, <laughs> so what were your strengths? <laughs> um, perseverance and perseverance. Um, no, I think which that, goes a long way. Uh, right, it goes a long way, but it doesn't go to the NFL. Um, I realized that I couldn't be a football player, so then I decided to be a kicker. So I thought I could oh, be involved, okay. so I started mm -hmm. to go outside and kick and kick and kick. And then I looked around and I saw, you know, the kickers in the NFL are all soccer players. I play football. I'm not really a kicker. I'm a football player. So that's kind of out the window. So then I decided, you know, one of the courses I had from a fabulous teacher in high school was um, a biology course. I always knew I wanted to get into business. My dad was a sales guy and a business guy for his whole life. Um, and I thought if I can combine those two, that yeah. would be a fabulous thing because I have a great interest in biology. Business is how you can make a living and, and have a great life. And, you know, and it's just a location. great foundational right. information for, for set you up for so many things. Yeah. Correct. So after I went away to school and got a business in biology major, I got a minor in history too. So I was busy when I was doing, they're all kind of diverse and you have to take a lot of classes. Biology has a lot of labs, so there's a lot of extra time. But oddly enough, I did always better in school when I was in football during the fall. Yeah, I was just going to say, and throw sports into that. That sure. adds to the busyness. But it's an organizational thing. I knew I had to go to class, mm -hmm. go to practice, mm -hmm. get my work done, and then hit the rack. And so it was kind of a cycle, and I'm a routine guy. I like processes, I like systems and routines. And when I was in that routine, you know, I didn't have time to um, really 
wander, shall we say. And, and in college, there's a lot of distractions. There's girls, there's beer, there's parties, <laughs> there's a lot of different things going on. And um, when I was in that kind of mode, I didn't have any problem just staying in it. Um, so when I was at school, I got a biology and business degree. I got out, I was recruited. I went to a job fair in Chicago and a company called Pfizer Laboratories said, hey, we'd really like to interview you. And I said, for what? I didn't even know what they did. I didn't know there was an industry in ethical pharmaceuticals. Um, and they said, well, we, we need some salespeople. We uh, have a pretty high bar. We get a lot of people from the military, military academy graduates, Air Force, Army, you know, Navy. Um, and I went and interviewed and actually got hired and moved from Iowa to Kansas City. Um, so did you know that sales you know, I, I've always or did been they kind of pick up on that? That you're I think a great just people person. <laughs> I, I think that they just hire, they interview a lot of people and they mm -hmm. say, "Hey, is this person engaging? Do they look you in the eye when they shake your hand? Are mm -hmm. they, you know, relatively are they in the energy? lab or are they out front? Right? Right. Exactly. So yeah, and I wasn't in the lab. I was an out front guy, and I'd and, always been involved. Yeah, with the business. With, yeah, the, both the two degrees. I can see how that would. Yeah, as well mm -hmm. as I was, um, you know, I had three offices in my fraternity. I was represented the uh, off campus people in the student council. I was a, um, I don't know, we called them prefects in high school. I was a leader in that area, so we got elected to that position. Um, and so I've always kind of been involved in some outside things when, oddly enough, you know, you kind of rise to leadership positions or at least influential positions. And, you know, you just try and give people what they need as far as sales go. So anyway, I went to work for Pfizer in Kansas City, and that was a eye-opening experience. Um, I had a great time um, learning about sales. They go with a Xerox sales program, which is, you know, kind of the gold standard. So they did train you. They oh, gave they you. trained a mm -hmm. lot. We went to New York City, which was comfortable. I had a lot of relatives that lived there. Um, and I spent a lot of uh, reasonable time there as a kid. Uh, and yeah, we got trained very well, went back. And I did that for four years. And I um, met a few guys at some doctor's offices who drove around in nicer cars than I did. Well, I'm not a shy person. So I said, hey, can I buy you lunch or a cup of coffee or something and find out what you do? Well, one gentleman sold heart valves and another guy sold orthopedic implants, hips and knees. And so I'm like, wow, you know, I don't really want to drive this Ford Taurus for the rest of my life, <laughs> even though it is free. Um, <laughs> these guys are have really cool cars. And at that time in my life, that was very attractive. So um, I decided to get away from Pfizer. And I, like I said, I was living in Kansas City. I quit my job. I took a risk. I had some money saved up. I went to Europe for three months and visited some of my dad's relatives um, in Germany and England and kind of got a year rail pass and bummed around for a little bit. I didn't do it right after school. I did it after I had some money. So it was a little bit um, different experience than the poor person's one. Um, and then I moved to Denver. Um, my roommate in college was selling real estate out here. We also played football together. And, you know, we'd always wanted to start a business together, and we couldn't do that if we were in different towns. I was spending a lot of time out here traveling back and forth because he's just a great guy, and we're just kind of friends for life type of thing. Um, and I came back here, and I found a job. The first job I got was in orthopedic implants with a small distributor. Yeah, but you had probably 
a better idea of where you wanted to go because yes. you had that experience yes. and you talked to those gentlemen about, well, what do you sell and why do you have right. a nice car? It's got to be And devices. how did they get here, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's I wanted to get in the device business and I, I was fortunate to get hired by a small company and I worked with them. And there was just four of us actually and an office manager. And we ran around Colorado and Wyoming, um, you know, going into surgery and selling our wares from anterior cruciate ligament screws to rotator cuff anchors to total hips, total knees. and Wow. So really a use of your business and your biology. <laughs> yes. And that's one of the things I love about medical sales is you never stop learning. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. not it's always you, something new, right? Yeah, there's always a new product. There's always a new technique, a new procedure, a new way of doing things, a new drug to treat the way the patients. And so, um, you know, being an expert in your field has always been important to me. And I think that when you're an asset for any business, whether it's a physician or a surgery center or a hospital or a, you know, a manufacturer or a construction company, that's the way you get invited back. Okay, mm -hmm. they'll give you a chance if they know you, but um, you know the way you get invited back is by giving them a great service at a good value, and you know making sure that they have a good outcome from what you give them. So, yeah. So, so I. So you bring that philosophy with you. That's going to take you far. Yeah, wherever you go, yeah. it doesn't matter what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked for Intermountain Medical for four years, and then um, Stryker, which is a big, giant medical company out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, had bought a French spine company. I'd run into them through operating rooms, and you know, the, it's not a, it's a competitive field, but we're not mean to each other. Um, we're kind to each other because you never know when your instrument is going to break and you need to borrow someone else's. Um, and plus, it's just there's no upside in being, I don't know, no. animosity. So we decided that I would go to work for them. And so I went to work for a giant company called Stryker selling their new spine instrumentation in Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, Montana, Utah. Um, and New Mexico. So, so it sounds like you were a road warrior in terms of, now is this car travel, plane no, travel? No, I mean, or? around Colorado it is, but I flew up to Billings, Montana a number of times, and, um, you know, it was kind of an introduction thing, so it was a lot of outreach and a lot of kind of, I don't know, missionary work. Where yeah, so when you're launching a new something brand new to the market, that's probably very different than, you know, yeah. selling something that's more established. And Entirely. so was that, um, did you like being in that mode now of something, you know, it sounds like you would have to learn to do, and you have to be more patient, right? And I would guess that the yes. sales aren't as quick. It's a longer sales cycle. And So with Intermount Medical, we had sports medicine, we had total joints, and then we sold spinal instrumentation. So they knew I had some relationships as well as some business in that industry. And, you know, a lot of times, hey, do you want to drive a Ford or a Chevy? What really makes a difference is maybe the service plan they give you or the person you deal with at each dealership. They both can do the job, but I really like Brian. If he's selling XYZ spine or he's selling ABC spine, the difference is Brian. So they would utilize my product. And so I got it going here in Colorado, um, did a little bit of outreach, and I worked that job for a couple of years. Now, um, in that couple of years, when they bring things over from Europe, a lot of times it's not Americanized meaning it's a little bit more futzy and not as user-friendly. We're very impatient in this country, and they tend to be uh, laboriously you know, involved in all their things. So at least the physicians were. And so um, it was a hard sell. It was a hard sell to get them to use it because it was futzy. There was a lot of little pieces that you had to put together inside a patient. And you know there were other things that it would be snap, you know, bang, mm -hmm. and it would be done. So. I didn't care for that as much, and so then after two years, I went to work for a biopharmaceutical company that had implants. 
I thought, okay, so here I am, I'm going to make a change. I don't like this thing with Stryker. How can I get into something that allows me to take some of my pharmaceutical experience as well as my medical device experience? Well, I went with a company called Genzyme that had a brand new patented film that prevented adhesions inside of people when they had uh, heart surgery, colorectal surgery, stomach surgery, you know, um, kind of abdominal surgery. Oh, wow. And so a lot of times when they go in there and they take your gallbladder out or they do colorectal surgery or they do a heart um, bypass, uh, the tissues stick to each other because they've been roughed up and kind of scarred on the way in and on the way out or just during handling, and they just adhere to each other. Well, if it's a bowel, that can lead to a kink, and then the person has an obstructed bowel, that's really bad. So they put this film on, and it prevents that from happening. It was hyaluronic acid in a sheet form that would dissolve over two weeks. So it was interesting. The application of it was pretty hard, so you had to teach people how to do that. But they also had other products. They had heart suture. They had punches to put holes in arteries and veins in order to um, do bypass surgery. So I spent a lot of time in general heart surgery and then colorectal surgery. Wow. So, so who – I'm sorry, I don't know the business side sure. of – this industry, who do you sell to? We sell to the doctors. To the doctors directly. The doctors. So you have like a Rolodex use. of all of these doctors yes. that you yeah. would then get time on the, and you could get time on their calendar. Well, you meet them <laughs> at the scrub sink when they're washing their hands before a case. You make an appointment at their office and you know have lunch or a coke or whatever. You find them in the surgical lounge when. Um, you know, that's available and, and they're in between cases. They already done their dictation. They have a couple of minutes down and you're really, um, you know, very uh, deferential in asking for time and say, hey, I, I know that you're busy. I, I get that you just got out of a case. Do you have five minutes? I just want to show you something new that I think may be able to help you through your cases. And, you know, some of them would be, sure, great. The other guys, you know, it depends upon the day. And they would say, no, I'm really not interested right now. Why don't you make an appointment with Sally at my office? And so, you know, you just... Do your thing. It's just yeah. like any sales job. You make calls and you ask people, um, you know, what the procedure is, how they do their job, and see if there's a way that you can fit your product in there that may help them speed it up, make it more secure, give the patient a better outcome. Um, the one thing that I found in that whole medical sales business, whether it was drugs or devices or implants or whatever, is when you keep the patient in mind and the physician knows that your main concern is not making money but making his patient better, you get called back a million times. Serve the ultimate client, which in that instance is the patient. patient. Yeah. Right. And if they have better outcomes, there's no reason for them not to come back. So, you know, that, it's, that takes so a little you, growing up and a little <laughs> bit of the world is a bigger place than just my little world mm -hmm. as well as, you know, I'm part of something bigger than myself. So, um, but when I did that and I, you know, a gentleman um, that I specifically remember, a gentleman who I was doing hips and knees with, he had a broken clavicle out in the western part of the state he had a patient with a broken clavicle he says hey brian i know you have some plates can you get them out here you don't have to come do this and i told him i said well mac you know um really there's a better product for this i don't sell it but here's the guy who does and this is why it's better well he ended up calling that guy using his product after that i could do no wrong because he realized that my concern was for his patient not for my pocketbook um and, you know, after that, he gave me more and more business, but it wasn't things that weren't as good as um, what he was using. It was, it was a situation where, hey, if you have something for this and it's equal, equally good, I'll use it. Mm -hmm. Because I know you care about my patients, and that's ultimately none of these other guys do. Yeah. So that's the philosophy and kind of the mindset that you brought to your, to your job. Yeah. 
Um, and your job, by the way, is life and death. I mean, this is correct. this is not copier ink, you know. Right. This well, is, I, the way I always looked at it, it's someone's sister, mom, mm-hmm. grandma on the table. Um, and, you know, what? how do you show up for that? Yeah. Well, you better show up. You better have all your stuff. You better be organized. You better have all the instruments that, that are needed to do the... So the way it works is we bring the instruments and the implants for each case, get them sterilized, and you know every doctor has a little bit of different recipe on how they do things. We have 25 steps to do a total knee. This guy does number 12. He does it at 10 place, okay, out of the norm, but this guy does it at 15 place. So you kind of come up with those things and make sure that you set up the back table so that it flows. And there's wow. a scrub nurse that hands the doctor instruments, and you just... Orchestrate Wait, is too big. Yeah, a word, this but. is. I'm, I'm learning so much about this. I know it's getting a little off of your career, sure. but uh, what I didn't yeah. realize is that that you all kind of came in that like right in the room, right? I'm thinking it's like it's in the office, it's in the conversation, and then they figure out how to incorporate it into their process. But no, you're you're the one that had to figure out how to incorporate it into. The yeah, process. and they. I mean, there's a million things for a physician to do, and if they can take this off the plate, you know, you go look at the X-rays a week before to make sure you have the right implants. If it's a really, um, I don't know, deformed knee or hip or whatever, maybe you bring in some things that are extra because it's out of the norm. Yeah. So. Wow. Anyway. It's wow. A, okay. So you're. It's an interesting response. You're deep in that business. So yeah. then how did you get over into the, so, or am I jumping question. too far? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I really enjoyed that. So I worked for them. Um, then in 1999, I bought into Intermountain Medical, the original distributorship that I worked for. Ah, okay. Um, they had compressed and as a life of a distributor you get products you lose products they get sold to bigger companies um i joined two guys and we had about a million dollars in sales um in the next 15 years we built it up to 10 million dollars in sales congratulations that's growth yeah yeah we had great growth it was remarkable um and we hired a lot of people that's where i made a lot of mistakes um and then came obamacare and there used to be about 20 hospital systems here in town now there's four um, and the physicians were independent. Now about 70% of them are employed by the hospitals. So when it was, um, you know, hey, Dr. Smith, um, I really like Brian's stuff. Well, I'd go to the OR person or purchasing at the hospital and say, hey, Mr. Dr. Smith wants to use my stuff. Well, they'd say, well, you know something, you're not really on our program here. You're not on formulary, whatever. And then I would have to go back to Dr. Smith and say, hey, Dr. Smith, they won't let me in. And he would go to the administration when he was independent and say, well, by the way, you know, St. Joe's right here, we're right across the street from PSL. And if you guys want me to, I can always take my business over there. And they would go to bat for you if you were good friends with them and had some juice, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. Um, That went away. And so my distributorship uh, went from $10 million to $6 million in sales as one of our product lines was purchased by Smith & Nephew, a giant company out of England. Um, so one of us had to go of my two partners, my three partners, and I was the youngest and figured, you know, I'm getting out while the getting's good because I could see the horizon where distributorships are going away. They're making these um, decisions on a national level um, in New York, in Nashville, Tennessee, in Ohio for the Sisters of Charity. So, you know, I didn't think there was a bright future in it. Yeah. And so I sold out to my partners and had to do something. I have three kids and, you know, I'm not independently wealthy and... My kids really enjoy food um, and shelter. So, and three boys, I would guess they there's yeah. a lot of food needed. Yeah, so I, um, I decided to look around. I looked at a, um, I got a business broker and took a look at a lot of different businesses. I got very serious about uh, either making caramel, which was interesting, and there was a high quality caramel. And then I had a distributorship in um, electronic parts. 
Um, I didn't end up doing those things. I went to a party at one of my neighbor's house and one of the gentlemen who was my neighbor had a staffing company. He just sold it six months before, but he'd been in it for 40 years. And so I talked to him at length and he said, you know, yeah, this business is great. You seem like a people guy. It's not that hard. We can just, you know, I'll help you. And so I looked around, found a staffing company and bought it. Now, what I found out was that, A, this guy didn't help me. Um, B, it's a transactional business and I'd been in relationship sales. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a big change for me and less satisfying than I um, was used to. Um, I'm not a transactional salesperson or interactor. I'm more of a relationship. I'd rather go narrow and deep than wide and shallow. So um, that was a challenge for me and it was hard for me to get used to and that's why I started 9 to 5 Search. If I get a bigger paycheck, I can afford to spend more time with the owners and with the clients and with the employers and employees um, and the candidates. So, um, and let's know, not make it a transaction. Let's, let's make, make it, it a, a relationship. Good fit. Yeah, yeah. Let's make it so fit. that I can get to a company um, that is big enough to where they make two or three hires a year. Then I can afford to spend time with them. Then I can afford to really serve them. Yeah. And so that was just much more fulfilling for me. So that's kind of where that came yeah. from. So when you were in this period of looking at, okay, you, you've sold one business and now you're looking to buy another, you hired a broker, you're talking to people. How long did that take? Give us some insight as to how that went for you. Because sure. this is where I think other people might be stuck when they leave something. And I know I was there. When you leave something, you, you take that time maybe to play or to enjoy. And then all of a sudden you start into the, oh, well, now I'm going to start... Right. Looking and then you can it can be discouraging. It can be really encouraging and exciting, and then everything goes quiet. So give us a sense what was going on for you. Yeah, I can give you my perspective on it. So it was um, I did take a little bit of time off. Um, I, like I said, I still have three kids at home and a wife, and I'm not a home guy. I fractured my clavicle, got a plate, and it was out at work three days later because it's not, I don't belong at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to be around people and need to be kind of engaged, shall we say. So for me, it was a hard thing to understand, like, this business, how do we get the value of it? And is it a long-term value? You know, can I grow it enough to recoup my costs as well as, you know, make something out of it? Is it scalable? Um, I don't think that do I, I did... want to be in that business. I mean, right. were you also looking at that? Do totally. I want to be in the Carmel business, right? Is this... Yeah, and I and I was arrogant enough to think that oh, I made my other business my series of one that I made successful. <laughs> my um, one I can kind of do. Yeah, I can probably you know business is business is business. What I didn't realize is that yeah, I wasn't self aware enough to know that this is a relationship business and I bought a transactional business. You know, that was probably not the smartest thing I could do because then I had to start another business within that to, to get fulfillment. Um, so uh, I think it's really, I think if you're going to buy a business, you should go to work in that industry before you buy it. I didn't know anything about staffing or recruiting. I should have went to work for Kelly or Robert Half or yeah. something in order to get a basis and get trained and understand it. I was just, honestly, I mean... You're a business guy. You're like, and I can right. make businesses work. That's right. what I do. I was, that was my mm-hmm. arrogance mm-hmm. speaking when I didn't really... I shouldn't have had that. I mean, it would have been smart to, to do that. So that's what I would encourage. That way you can find out, do I like this? Am I well-trained? 
can I actually make something like this go and then go out and look for something? So either you can pay for your training or you can have someone else pay for your training. <laughs> um, and I think it's a better idea to have someone else pay for it. Yeah. It's not that you're you know, trying to rip them off. It's just you're trying to evaluate and see if the industry works for you. And you're getting paid while you're learning. I right. mean, that's a, that's a different... You're, you know, you're giving them some value, but also you're... So that would be like if you want to... You know, I looked at being an electrical contractor, okay, and doing wires. Not me doing the wires, but buying a business that did the wires. And, you know, I, sh- I didn't know how to do that. I like construction. I enjoy that stuff. But, you know, who knows? I mean, that, I think there's a lot of mistakes that can be made that can be alleviated if you actually, A, talk to a lot of people, B, talk to people who have bought businesses, you know, four or five years ago, and C, go try out the business. Go try out the industry if you want to change industries before you actually Yeah, dive into that. Yeah. Uh, when I left corporate, I um, was uh, take, took advantage of a service called Right Management. It was a transition mm-hmm. services, and one of the, they had a whole day on entrepreneurial well, I knew within the first 15 minutes I didn't want to be entrepreneurial at the time because they were very good at saying, when you're entrepreneurial, you know, you're selling, you're doing the you're expertise, and, and, you're marketing. Doing, and then you're also doing all of the, the, tech, the thing you really want to do. So if you want to do just the thing you want to do, you may not want to be an entrepreneur because you have to do so much more in those other realms. But um, yeah, so it's a very good point about... How, you know, how do you figure that stuff out? And they talked about franchises and, oh, yeah, everybody wants to, oh, if I had three Subway stores, think of the money I would make. Well, do you want to work with teenagers? Do you want to be called in because people don't show up? And, yeah. yeah. So you really have to look at so that. So it's really interesting. The, the probably space. the best, smartest thing that I did is I went to B&I groups and, you know, the chamber groups and all that. And that was more about people stabbing you with cards, to asking you what you could do for them. Um, then I joined a, uh, a business organization called the 3 to 5 Club. And it's Chuck Whiteman, making money is killing your business. And it's a process. It's a 17-month curriculum on how to run a business. To your point about, you know, we have a process to do our business. We find a client, we fulfill the job, okay? There's 10 steps and there's seven sub-steps in each one. Well, one of, the, one of the exercises is process mapping. How many of those boxes out of the 70 in there am I in? And which is the first one I want to get out of? And who can I replace myself with? And it might be an outsourced 1099, you know, thing, uh, we work type of thing, or I forgot what it's called, where you go and find people to do the work. I don't like marketing. I don't know how to do it. I don't really like accounting. So those things are relatively easy to outsource. But some of the data entry stuff, one of the big hangups I had is I believe that because I didn't like to do data entry, probably no one liked to do data entry. Oh. And so what I realized is that for da- data entry is like a puzzle for some people. They really enjoy getting it all lined up and really nice and, and clean and all those things. And they have a lot of accomplishment. And right. Yeah. Entirely. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's just like torture. <laughs> I mean, it's just me and a computer in a little corner just punching away at keys. And, you know, I'd much rather engage with people and be involved and kind of get fired up about a project or meet someone or do something like that. So, you know, after I overcame that hurdle and kind of got out of the boxes that didn't energize me and was doing just the things that do energize me, I kind of realized that, you know, this is, this is a lot better. Oh, my God. And there's so many people you can outsource to for a lot better um, value. So I can spend $20 having someone enter the data or I can take my time, which I feel is worth you know, more than $20 mm-hmm. and enter the data. So it doesn't even make economic sense for me to do it. Yeah. So I can be much better getting a new client or fulfilling a job or getting a, you know, something else. And it's A, it's energizing, B, it pays better, and C, you know, I, I, I do it. I would put those things off and procrastinate because I didn't like doing them. Mm. I'm no different than any other human. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So put off I, what you don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. So getting involved in three to five club was a probably the best investment I ever made. It was um, just peer advisory. Okay, this guy's an accountant. This guy's an attorney. They run a marketing company, and we all have the same problems as businesses. Okay, it's people, it's money, it's collections, it's getting clients. And many of them are probably in different um, seasons of their business, right? In terms of some are more mature, some are just starting out. And so you can learn from them in terms of what they did, how they moved from having no employees to having a, you know, a team. that first one, and then they had five, and then they had 15 yeah. or whatever, right? So, it's not unlike yeah. growing up, okay? You know, I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. if you talk to people that are older than you and are, are have been through the experiences you're going to go through, you're going to get some probably pretty good advice if they care about you. And so I've always been one that wants to, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I don't need to go through the pain. So let me ask someone who's done it before what they did, and I'll try that. And if it doesn't work, then I'll modify it and try it again or talk to another person. So the whole peer advisory idea is just remarkable, as well as the curriculum that they have in order to, this is our accounting curriculum we do for two weeks. This is what we do as far as marketing. This is how you hire and keep employees. And so it's- Oh, so there's training also then yeah, on, this, on these business topics. Yeah, Okay. I mean- So not just the peer, the connections. Yeah, yeah it's wow. really, it's a great program. I can't tell you how much I got out of it. I think a lot of it's got to do with the facilitator and the facilitator ended up being, you know, a good friend and a mentor to me, John Garrier. Um, he's a wonderful human being who really cares about helping people get their business to where they want it to be. Because inevitably, business people are on the treadmill. You know, you're mm-hmm. running and running and running and you're doing accounting and marketing and fulfillment and sales and all this stuff. And then, you know, you're tired and you can't get off that treadmill. So how do you stop working in your business and start working on your business? Setting up processes and systems so that you give a consistent um, product or service to your client. Because, uh, you know, we don't, I, go, I don't go to McDonald's very often, but if I go to McDonald's in Denver or if I go to McDonald's in Tokyo, it's the same hamburger yeah. because they have a process. It may be not the best hamburger, but I know what to expect. Yeah. And I get a good value. And the reason you probably went in Tokyo is because you needed that. Right. I need a little <laughs> taste of America. Okay. Um, so we've got about five minutes left. Sure. Uh, I could talk to you all afternoon. I know it flew by, didn't it? Yes. I, I apologize for so, my lengthy explanations. What? When you look back on your career and your life and how you made decisions, what might you suggest um, was uh, you know the smartest thing you ever did? Just overall, you just said the smartest thing you did sure. as a small business owner was the three to five club. But yes. what what's kind of served you well if you looked at a theme in your life? I think talking to other people. I, I really believe being transparent and authentic and, and having a peer group has been, you know, whether it's in my personal life, I have it through the CTLF with, um, I'm in a men's group where we can really kind of all talk. There's gentlemen in there who are unbelievably successful and there's me. Um, (laughs) No, it's a group of 12, um, but there's a wide variety of experiences and backgrounds, but we all kind of have the same problems in our personal lives or in our business lives. Mm -hmm. And when you can be transparent and authentic and vulnerable, um, you get honest answers and you get help and you um, find your tribe. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Find your tribe that are people who are like-minded, share your values, share your aspirations, share kind of where you want to get to. Um, and, you know, we have a saying in CTLF, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I know. I love that. It's, it's a great it's, saying. And it's simple and, it's, and it's, you get it. You just really get it. And if you have that group, 
that will take you anywhere. I mean, that's what's the basis of it is. And, and you know, you got to find that in any area of your life, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in sports or whether it's in business or whether it's in school. Just find the people that kind of think like you do. Maybe not exactly the same, but be authentic and open with them when you're having troubles, and we all have troubles. Hey, I'm really struggling with this. Is, do you have anything you could help me with about this? You know, I don't... Um, have the ability to kind of get over this hurdle. Have, have you been through that? And if not, then can you point me in the direction of someone who has? So uh, think about the um, good feeling you get inside yourself when you help someone, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When you're helpful, it, it, it fills you up your bucket right inside of you. So I think it's rather selfish of us to not ask for help from other people and give them the opportunity to fulfill them, fill their, uh, have that feeling themselves. Yeah, that's, that's so, so true because you're right. Whenever I help someone, I do feel great, yeah. but then sometimes I feel weird helping or, or asking, asking for, for help. help. And I'm like, why do I feel weird about that? Because, because they want to contribute. They want to know what's going on. Not everything is perfect. And by the way, no. a lot is perfect. So also share that, right? Share yeah. the good stuff too. So, you know, you good, the bad, and the ugly, all that other stuff. But give people an, give other people an opportunity to serve. Yeah. And then ultimately be in service of your client and friends and business associates and people you meet and... You know, just try and do the next right thing. So, um, like I said, I have three sons. I spent, I've coached football, baseball, basketball, and soccer for them, over 70 teams. And I think one of the gifts I have is I know how to build teams. And I know how to um, come up with a goal collaboratively and then put in place steps to achieve that goal. That's my gig. And I talked to my kids a lot about it. I said, your job in life is to figure out what your gifts are. Your purpose in life is to give them away. Because inevitably and invariably, when you give them away, you'll get compensated. It all comes around. It's a big circle. And so just, you know, those are hard things for an 11-year-old to understand. But my 15-year-old oftentimes asks me, Dad, I don't know what my purpose is. I'm like, let's look at your gifts. Okay, you're smart and you're funny, you know, all this stuff. And we all build our kids up and think they're the best thing, which is the way it should be. But, um, you know, use those gifts and give them away. Make other people laugh. Be a great friend. You know, be a service, go shovel the next door neighbor's driveway and, and, you know, say, I don't want to get paid. I just did it because you've always been kind to us. Mm-hmm. And or you just, you know, I just want to do it because it's the right thing to do. And when people act that way as a community, life works. Yeah. And then other people see that and they start to act that way. I mean, it, yeah. It's so it's such a great, uh, great philosophy. So, well, Brian, I could again, I could spend all afternoon talking oh, it's with been you. Fun. Thank you for sharing your story. And I think um, yours is a story that I really want to put out there because it also your philosophy is what this podcast is about which is how do you share your story how do you share what you've been through and how you had to overcome some things here and there and um it's not always easy and sometimes you make mistakes and you've talked a little bit about that i mean we could have gone deeper there but sure it uh, it is about sharing that and then someone else might go oh well i need to try that or um they can always contact me. I can tell them all the mistakes I've made as far as buying a business so that they don't make them. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of people who do that. Yeah, learn from others. Yeah, mm-hmm. why, why should they make the same mistakes? Yeah. Well, thank you for that offer. So, sure. listeners, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe. Uh, you can also find me on lifestorycurator.com, and then I'll post, Brian, I'll put your information, okay. your company information out there. So if you have questions for Brian, questions for me, please put those out there, and I'll make sure he gets them. Uh, if they're for me in future podcasts, then I'll try to incorporate them into some other interviews. So on that note, have a great day. Hey, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it, and you're a great interviewer. Oh, well, thanks, Brian. You're have welcome. a good one.